This is a Dalina University production. Hello and welcome to Dalina University. My name is Konstantin Andreev, and this is the first in a very short series of lectures entitled The Universal Language. In these lectures, there are four of them, each about 15-20 minutes long, I'll be talking about an idea that unites the ancient authors of the Tower of Babel myth with those of our contemporaries who expect everyone to be able to speak English. The idea that the best state of linguistic affairs imaginable is a universal language spoken by all humanity. From a linguistic point of view, human history has been both a story of amazing language diversity and a story of our struggle to overcome it. Some people have gone so far as to call it a curse. Some governments have made very real efforts to stamp it out within their own national borders by promoting some big language of their choice. Some people have designed universal languages in the hope of bringing down the language barrier once and for all. In more mundane terms, language diversity has been a practical problem, a hurdle to trade and interpersonal communication, a hurdle which had to be cleared somehow, in some way, right there and right then. It is this struggle, this reality of the universal language, as it were, that we're going to be talking about in this short series. First, we'll have a look at lingua francas. That is to say, so-called natural languages, such as Latin, French, or Mandarin Chinese, languages of particular human tribes that somehow outgrew their tribal origins to become something bigger. Such languages are also referred to as languages of wider communication. We'll try to see what it takes for an ordinary language to become a lingua franca. In the second lecture, we'll focus on English, the biggest lingua franca in human history. We'll try to peek into the future and see whether English is likely to become the universal language. In the third lecture, we'll consider pidgins, creoles, and so-called constructed languages. In other words, we'll look at various languages that were actually developed to facilitate what we might now call international communication. Developed spontaneously, like Doc Pisin, or very much on purpose, like Esperanto. We will also see, I hope, that the line between such languages and natural languages is much more blurred, much less clear than people tend to think. Finally, in the last installment of the series, we'll have another, more detailed peek into the future and see whether the dream, or the nightmare, depending on how you see it, of all humans sharing one language is ever likely to come true, in any shape or form. We'll also talk about what each of us can do about that future, whatever it might hold. As I said, we'll start by looking at natural lingua francas, languages that were or are still used for international communication, languages such as French or modern standard Arabic. Obviously, 20 minutes is too little time for even a very brief historical overview of all natural languages that have served as important lingua francas in different parts of the world unless I simply wanted to list their names and the regions where they were or are spoken. This is why, rather than engage in list-making, I'm going to limit myself to as much history as I need to illustrate one very important point. The actual history of would-be natural languages has been anything but a story of well-meaning idealists striving to eliminate the language barrier in the name of international friendship and peace on Earth. More specifically, I'll try to answer the following question. Can any language become a lingua franca? The answer has to be twofold. In theory, yes. In historical practice, well, no. 
The theoretical yes is much easier to explain, especially once we've looked at the practical side of things. This is why we'll leave it aside for now and we'll deal with the practice first. As is often the case, accounting for the practical now is going to be a bit more complicated. Defining the difference between a language and a dialect, the great Yiddish linguist Max Weinreich famously quipped that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Likewise, the emergence of a lingua franca is never a strictly linguistic business. If a language wants to transgress tribal boundaries and become a lingua franca, it needs some serious non-linguistic backup. What kind of backup? Well, let's ask history. One historical figure that most people will have heard of is Jesus of Nazareth, an apocalyptic preacher who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. The books that tell us of his life and teachings were originally written in Greek, but Jesus himself did not speak Greek. And contrary to what some people seem to think, he didn't speak English either. He spoke Aramaic, a language related to Hebrew and Arabic. Syriac, the modern-day descendant of Aramaic, only survives in a few villages in Syria, Iraq and Iran. And here we can say, how are the mighty fallen? In the first millennium before Common Era, Aramaic was a language of inter-ethnic communication across the vast region between the Aegean Sea and northern India, and Aramaic kept this role for about a thousand years. It was a working language of three successive empires. First, the Assyrian Empire, then Babylonia, then the Persians, and that's despite the fact that the Arameans, the first speakers of the language, did not create or rule any of those empires. In fact, their lands were conquered by the Assyrians. But the Arameans' revenge was to leave their lands, move into the heart of the empire, presumably have lots of babies, and gradually outnumber and outspeak their conquerors. We can see then that it probably was the sheer number of native speakers and their ubiquity that set Aramaic on its course to becoming a lingua franca. However, I have a hunch that Aramaic wouldn't have got very far on that course if it hadn't been uprooted by Assyrian armies in the first place. After a while, Aramaic actually became the language of choice in the Assyrian military, and it began to seep into imperial bureaucracy as well. And another empire later, when the Persians took over from the Babylonians, the adoption of Aramaic as the working language of the imperial administration was complete. From then on, any victory for the Persian Empire was also a victory for Aramaic. Not only did it have a large native speaker base, it also had military might and therefore political power. And therefore, a more persuasive claim to universality. This story has repeated itself time and again. Attic Greek may have been the language of a glorious civilization, but it was Alexander the Great and ten years of incessant warfare that ushered in the heyday of Greek as a lingua franca of the Eastern Mediterranean. Latin was first planted all over Europe by the Roman legions. Arabic first spread across the Middle East, Central Asia and North Africa on the heels of the Muslim conquests. In the part of the world that would eventually become Latin America, the spectacular career of Spanish took off in style when white people from across the ocean used their guns and horses to destroy the states of the Aztecs and the Incas. The Incas' conquests, in their turn, had been a real boost to Quechua, the language of government in the huge Inca Empire. To this day, Quechua is the largest indigenous language surviving in the Americas. Around the same time as Spanish was first heard in Central America, the Moscow state was finishing its so-called unification of what is now the European part of Russia. Within a few decades, 
Moscow would embark on a long, long, never-ending campaign of further conquests. These conquests would go on for centuries and make Russian by far the largest Slavic language and the lingua franca of yet another enormous empire. The rise of Russian continued when the empire turned socialist. As the Soviet Union became a military superpower, Russian became a super language. Millions of people across Eastern and Central Europe, in Southeast Asia and even in the Caribbean, learned Russian because it had not just an army and not just a navy. It had a very big army and a very big navy to show for its universality. And it had a bunch of nuclear warheads into the bargain. Having said that, the enthusiasm for Russian often had an additional explanation, an additional dimension, we can say, and namely Soviet economic aid. This naturally brings us to another fairly obvious factor that gives us lingua francas, economic interest. If that's too trivial and too mundane, though, consider a different factor. Consider those people who used to learn Russian neither because they had Soviet troops stationed nearby nor because they received Soviet subsidies. I'm talking about people who were driven by ideology, people for whom Russian was the lingua franca of international communism. And since communism was the inevitable future of humanity, Russian was also the lingua franca of the future. Needless to say, this view was actively encouraged and promoted by the Soviet government. Russian was officially designated the language of international communication. And just as American science fiction tends to paint a future in which the entire galaxy converses in fluent English, many of the Soviet sci-fi books I very much enjoyed as a kid assumed that the true universal language, the language of the universe, was bound to be Russian. Even better examples of ideological lingua francas are languages riding on the back of religion. Arabic is one case in point. It is important to remember that the vernacular Arabic spread by the Muslim conquests of the 7th and 8th centuries is now a family of languages, or as they're usually referred to, dialects. Over hundreds of years, these vernacular varieties have changed quite a lot, and many of them are now mutually unintelligible. The lingua franca of educated Arabs, known in English as modern standard Arabic, is quite distinct from all of them. It is based on the classical Arabic of the Quran, the kind of Arabic that is not supposed to change, because it's sacred and therefore perfect. In other words, Islam has not only made classical Arabic the universal language of the Muslim world, it has also kept it essentially the same for well over a thousand years. Impressive as that might sound, there are a couple of languages I know of that have enjoyed comparable devotion for twice that time. One of them is Sanskrit. Sanskrit may not have pre-existed the universe like classical Arabic apparently did, but I think it would be fair to refer to Sanskrit as not just sacred, but double sacred. It is the language of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, the great Hindu epics composed in the middle of the first millennium before Common Era. And as if that wasn't enough, it is also the language of a number of important Buddhist texts, which is part of the reason why it was held in high regard throughout East Asia, from the Himalayas to Java to Japan. Some Europeans have called Sanskrit the Latin of Asia, or the Greek of Asia, or both. Now, I'm not quite sure which of the two languages, Latin or Greek, is more deserving of the title the Sanskrit of Europe. But one thing that Sanskrit, Latin and Greek certainly have in common is the cultural prestige they once conveyed. For many centuries, people mastered these languages because they meant access to learning and a superior culture. 
or at any rate to what was perceived as a superior culture. Sanskrit was not only a gateway to Hindu and Buddhist writings. It was the language of a huge body of poetry, drama, comedy, law, history, philosophy and linguistics. In and around India, Sanskrit was an education in itself, just as a decent command of Greek was the hallmark of learning in Rome, and just as Latin was a prerequisite of any kind of education in medieval Europe. Arabic, of course, was the universal language of intellectual endeavors in the Muslim world, at least until those endeavors were largely abandoned in favor of religion. More recently, for a brief period for about a century, German got to be the international language of science, simply because universities in the German-speaking countries were better than elsewhere, and because there was so much excellent philosophy and science being done there. Of course, this universal career of German was doomed as soon as the Nazis started burning books, and as soon as the best German-speaking researchers started leaving for the US. To sum up what we've seen so far, there are several things that can turn a language into a lingua franca. Sometimes it takes a lot of native speakers. Sometimes it takes war and conquest. It takes political power, in other words. Sometimes it takes economic power and trade. Sometimes it takes a contagious ideology, such as religion. Sometimes it takes cultural prestige. In most cases, it takes a combination of all or most of the above. One thing it doesn't take, and that's why, in theory at least, any language has a shot at becoming a lingua franca, now, one thing it doesn't take is a particular language structure. In the 19th century, French was the lingua franca of the European elite. And there was a general feeling, not just in France, but all across Europe, that French suited this role particularly well because it was somehow more elegant and more rational and more logical than other languages. Well, of course, in reality, the prominence of French had nothing to do with its grammar or its vocabulary. And it had everything to do with the fact that for a couple of centuries, French had been the language of the most powerful and popular centralized state in Europe. What is more, just a century later, French lost its position to English, despite the fact that even some English authors once thought that English was hopelessly inferior to French. Sometimes I read in my students' essays that English has the easiest grammar in the world, or something like that. And that's why it's the global lingua franca. Interestingly, you only hear such comments from Europeans, never from Chinese students, for example. Somehow, many non-European students just don't find English all that easy. It is true that people might pick up a lingua franca more quickly if it is similar to their first language. One obvious example is the country where I live, Sweden. Swedes have a much easier time learning English than, say, Japanese people or even speakers of some other European languages. In fact, if you speak Swedish, you can get by in English just fine if you simply take a Swedish sentence and replace each word with an English equivalent. Slot by slot, so to say. I am, of course, exaggerating, but not by much. To give you another example, speakers of Slavic languages like Ukrainian or Bulgarian certainly had an easier time with Russian than did Hungarians or Estonians. But as we have seen, that's not really important. Russian was, and still is, learned and used by millions of people as a lingua franca, even though no one has ever described his grammar as simple. Not to the best of my knowledge, anyway. If, by some extraordinary miracle, the Soviet Union had done better in the Cold War than it did, I might be speaking Russian to you now instead of English, and you would understand. 
Attic Greek served as a lingua franca for several centuries, despite the fact that it had about 350 regular verbs. And even those verbs that were regular could still have dozens and dozens of different forms. Generations of teachers brutalized generations of students with the intricacies of Latin grammar. And the whole time everyone thought that, as the language of scholarship, Latin was a perfect choice, precisely because its structure was so awe-inspiring. Modern standard Arabic is in some ways more complex than any of the Arabic vernaculars, but somehow I don't think we'll be seeing any proposals to simplify it anytime soon. Both French and English are a pain to spell and an extreme pain to pronounce. French has a dozen different vowel sounds where most languages manage just fine with five, and English actually has more than a dozen. Both French and English have horribly complex consonant clusters. These clusters, these combinations of consonants, are especially difficult to pronounce for speakers of East Asian languages, such as Vietnamese. Nevertheless, Vietnamese people learned French when France occupied their country. And now that English has emerged as the global lingua franca, for a number of non-linguistic reasons, they're learning English. In other words, given the right circumstances, any language can entertain the ambition of becoming more or less universal, at least for a time. And that was my answer to the main question of this lecture. In the next lecture, we'll continue talking about natural languages of wider communication, this time with a specific focus on English, and we'll try to answer the following questions. Can a lingua franca last forever? In other words, are we stuck with English for the rest of human history? And the other question is, is any natural language actually qualified to be universal? Thank you.